I never wanted to be in advertising. I've always hated advertising. I've always been very against it. When I was younger, I wanted to go to art school. I refused to wear clothing that had labels on it. Mm -hmm. I generally wore all black. I I was so against all of this. I was I was obsessed with Adbusters, which is this magazine that's like explicitly against advertising. Okay. Um, and then I was in academia for almost like basically 10 years just studying everything under the sun yeah. from like philosophy to Chinese to linguistics to women's studies. I was like all over the place. And when you don't graduate college after 10 years you have a lot of debt and you have no experience oh. to get a job oh, yeah. and I just kind of fell backwards into advertising because a friend of mine thought that I would be a good producer and then I couldn't sleep at night because suddenly I was working for the man mm. and I had to figure out like can I can I consciously do this like mm. can I actually be working for a global ad agency and not feel bad about what I'm doing My name is Innocent Mugenga, and you're listening to the Learnability Podcast. We all come from somewhere and aim to make a journey through life. Constant change. This is an open-ended exploration of our ability and desire to learn, grow, and adapt. In conversation with inspiring individuals and experts in the fields of sciences, technology, behavior, and performance, we seek to find answers to how to navigate and win in this information age. The future is happening now, and we aspire to evenly distribute the knowledge by empowering your learnability. Let's go. My name is Abel Buko, and I do insights for Banner Boy. You're also a um, researcher within the history of <laughs> uh, digital advertising. Yeah, that's kind of my self-given title. Yeah, yeah. Um, I fell backwards into this industry and my, my personality is that I can't just do something. I have to know everything about it. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't enough just to be working with banners. I had to know why do we have banners? Where do they come from? Yeah. And that's what's led me to my position that I have, not my position, but like my, my viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So would you mind to share a little bit of what you find, f- found during your <laughs> research into the history? Uh, I think the, the quick summary yeah. that I've come to is that I view internet advertising and not banners, but internet advertising. So social media, yeah. videos, static images, all those things. I view advertising on the internet like bees. Oh yeah. Um, very few people see a bee land on their arm and think, oh my God, what a beautiful bee. You know, <laughs> like you're at a picnic or something, bees land in your food. Like very few people are happy about that. My first instinct is run. Run, yeah, yeah, yeah. like kill it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's put nets up. Yeah. Let's, let's keep them away. Let's, yeah. let's remove them from our eyesight. Um, but if bees went away, all of our flowers would die and all of our ecology would die and we would all starve, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's actually happening right now. That's like the thing. Those pesticides are killing bees. Yeah. It's, and it's a real life problem. Yeah. And I've come to see Internet advertising in that same role, that Internet or advertising funded services and products on the Internet is what makes the Internet amazing. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it a democratic world. And I don't mean democratic in like the kind of governmental sense. No. I mean it in the sense that IKEA uses it. Mm-hmm. So IKEA talks about democratic design as design that's accessible to everybody. Yes. That you don't have to be rich in order to have nice things. And so I believe that the internet, the power of it is 
the gathering aspect of it. And advertising, whether you like it or not, is what provided that to us. Could you give some examples of how how the internet has been uh, fueled by it being free? By it being free. Yeah. <laughs> Accessible. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the first thing that I always come to, and I don't know if it's a really good example or not, but it's it's the whole revolution that happened in Egypt. The fact that the government had to shut down Twitter mm. to prevent it. Like imagine if everyone in Egypt had to have a paid account or if there was not if there were no free services. The ability to quickly spread that information and for that information to quickly spread not just within the community that needed it, but for the whole world. I just got like my hair is standing up on my arm right now. For the whole world to instantly see that that's happening, that's so powerful. And it's because Converse is running ads for sneakers. You know, it's like these like it's these, yeah. these silly you don't think things that you're not thinking about. Yeah. You're not thinking about the bees, but they're doing such an important role for us. I, I, um, I appreciate the example of Egypt. Uh, I recently had Aza Ali on the podcast mm-hmm. who, were talk, who was talking about the current situation in Sudan, okay. where they've shut down the internet. Right. And that's the main thing they want to put back on right now because they want to get their message out. They, want to, they need to communicate with each other and organize and mobilize, simply fighting for democracy and their human rights. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. We will start off with you giving a short introduction of who you are and what you do. All right. So we discussed this earlier because sometimes you uh, tend to have many hats, many roles, but uh, during daytime, you will probably find me at my PR agency that I have co-founded and that I run. Yeah. uh, Working with marketing, PR and personal branding. Yeah. But... As the, as soon as uh, the clock hits lunchtime yeah. or six o'clock in the evening or it turns Saturday, Sunday, uh, you will see me working with Open Act, Open which Act. is an NGO uh, working to monetize and raise awareness about politicians, yeah. a rhetorical framing, a framing of uh, immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. And the consequences of that, that we have seen now in El Paso, we have seen it in oh, Norway yeah. happening, and we can see it also happening in Sweden. Oh, yeah. I want to actually go go into that mm. directly. So uh, Open Act, you are, work within the space of data and, and tracking uh, usage of uh, language mm-hmm. with the help of data, right? Yeah. How do you go about in doing this? And how has data come to... Uh, become such a huge part in our political discourse? Well, basically, uh, what data allows us to do is actually measure and put something together that is uh, an objective uh, result that can show us a transformation over time and really uh, show um, like real uh, consequences of rhetorics so data for us from the beginning has been manually going through a lot of data Mm. Uh, so what we started doing was that we compared the party leaders way of phrasing immigrants Mm. and we needed a format that we could compare over time yeah Uh, so we used a tv show that's always been that been uh, broadcasting party what political debates yeah yeah Uh, for at least a decade, uh, which is called SVT Agenda, yeah. or Agenda, Agenda. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and we started to analyze manually 
uh, which meant uh, transcribing oh. uh, words by words what politicians were saying when they were actually talking about immigrants. Oh, yeah. And we found the system based on previous study how to group certain uh, phrases and words connected to uh, the groups who could be a negative, positive, uh, positive or neutral yeah. uh, choices or wordings. Uh, so we went through maybe 50 hours of political debate manually, transcribing, transcribing finding words, grouping uh, words together, wow. comparing the results. So we went back in time uh, to th- 2008 yeah, yeah. Uh, and then until <clears throat> 2018, which was the election year. How many uh, people are you doing this? Uh, we are five, five yeah. uh, in an uh, uh, analytic team, yeah. if you want to call it that. Yeah. And then we have um, different experts within rhetorics, professor and oh. so on, that has helped us, um, well, developing our process yeah. and uh, feedback on our results because you have a huge responsibility when it comes to handling data oh, yeah. and you always have a human factor of when course. you do it manually yes and now going forward we want like we would like to avoid that by using machine learning obviously oh yeah uh, how would that work <laughs> so the machine learning will transcribe mm-hmm. and based maybe of your previous years have some data of how to group these words. Is that yeah, about exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. So we use our previous technique, yeah. but uh, going forward, we will be able to take in so much more data, yeah. which means that the result will be even more relevant. Oh, yeah. Um, and partly because it will be objective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it will give a more fair result uh, so we can compare more formats, for example. Oh, yeah. And bring out more, more, than bring more data. So we have put like the base for our uh, monitoring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what you what you want to call it, like method. Yeah. Um. But yeah, now we're keen to take the next step. But manually, it's exhausting. I can I'm imagine. Tired. It, yeah. You've done a really great job <laughs> in just getting this off. Very special yeah. uh, weekends together with <laughs> with the uh, yeah political the debates oh, and yeah. a lot of coffee. Oh yeah, you're listening at the same time. Really, yeah, like, absolutely. Word to word. Yeah, yeah. I dream about this yeah. debate sometimes. I'm like, oh my god, 2010. That was an intense year. An intense year. Yeah. So what what have you learned from this data, and how do you go about publishing it, and what? Maybe that's too many questions. What have you yeah, learned from like, the data? <laughs> depends what kind of answer you want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what have you learned from the data and how do you go about publishing your insights? Uh, well, I have what we have learned is to, uh, well, basically, we have learned that data, well, for us, yeah. has helped us to prove a point mm. that people start to talk about. I mean, we have had big collaboration with bigger NGOs fighting for human oh. rights, talking about the consequences of rhetorical framing, yeah. like us versus them, mm. and these people are like that, or those people are like that. But we never had like real great studies on how political or politicians are framing immigrants, for example. Uh, So we learned that there is immense power in this kind of data Mm. to push politicians and media to use other kind of words. My name is Susan, and I uh, am the CEO of The Social Few uh, and uh, uh, Head of Diversity Management at M Volvo Car Mobility. 
Uh, and at the social view, what we do is basically um, increase the perspective densi- density in the organization in mm. order to create a larger impact uh, in the organization and in society uh, at large. What do you call that work? It's a diversity agency? That- diversity management agency. Management agency. Great. Well, uh, my name is David Kabasi. Uh, I work as head of insights at the social view. So I work with the data. Yeah. Uh, and that's the fun part. Yeah. Because you meet a lot of people. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. How do you go about in working with the data? Well, we started off um, with interviewing 300 people uh, in four different groups um, based on language. Um, and we got eight to 900 data points uh, from these groups. Um Everything from how you consume things, um, who you share your inner thoughts with, um, how do you use the digital media mm-hmm. um, in different ways, how you use your phone, who do you call, um, everything that's about everyday life, basically. And from that, from that, we built algorithms for social media and iterated for a couple of while mm-hmm. until it worked very well. Uh, and now we can reach 98% of, of uh, the six largest minority groups in Sweden yeah. uh, in a very efficient way. Um, so, yeah, that's basically where we started. Wow. So you said you you did interviews with 300 individuals. Right. J- just out of curiosity, does your data become better with a bigger group? Or like if you would increase the size of the group, would that help improve the data? Or Sure. Yeah, it, yeah, it makes yeah. it more accurate. Oh, yeah. And so that's a very good question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if we do a, a qualitative focus groups, and those are perfectly fine to do yeah. um, based on what your target is and your ambitions. But when we do data among a thousand people yeah. uh, in a very specific group, in this case, minority group, yeah. uh, we find a lot of similarities. Oh, you yeah. know? So then we can know what the challenges are, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the challenge, actually, uh, and um, how we can build trust by having a direct dialogue uh, with um, with these people uh, and and that's very important because if you don't have a dialogue then we can't uh, they can't contribute and we can't understand how we can contribute mm. to build whatever better societies better companies uh, better working places um, and it goes from from everywhere it's, mm. it's everywhere so we need to work inclusive in that sense and uh, so the more data the more accurate yes. more efficient yes. it becomes more transparent yeah. if it's data driven it's digital yeah uh, we can use that data for a lot of things to cross tabulate the data mm. we can analyze the data um we can find out why specific things in the society is wrong or why specific things in a company is not working mm. you know so we can tap that and change the processes or the attitude or marketing campaigns or whatever you mm. need to do and fundamentally it's about um involving and including minorities uh, within the larger uh, discussions what happened like in society how do you want to live basically mm-hmm. and what can we do to enable that yeah uh, because right now we are talking about minorities we're mm-hmm. not talking with minorities sometimes we talk to minorities mm-hmm. uh, and that's a huge problem mm-hmm. uh, so that's why we sometimes even get when we do send out the surveys yeah 
we get an answer back like thank you for asking us oh yeah which Thanks. is uh, that says a lot that's very common really? wow okay that's very common specifically when 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 authorities um mm. do these quant surveys yeah um it's very common that people say wow i've been in sweden for 25 years mm. this is the first time you're speaking to me in my native language yeah. but it's always in the native language yeah yeah um and even if you understand swedish which most do yeah, right, i yeah. think we have a picture of <laughs> that not being the the fact yeah. uh it is different when you get it in your own language definitely my personal view and and i guess uh a view that is shared by many is that the monetary incentives is sort of what's skewing the the ads and the build up and the collection of data and driving that How do you see it? Is it the monetization that's the problem, or is it deeper than that? It's uh, it's so <laughs> dense. Um, I think I would start with saying that I always think of these things, and not not always. It's a lot. I have come to think about all these things um, as that phrase, like the the road to hell is paved in good intentions. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't think at any point in time there was someone like in a chair in front of a fire, like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to ruin the internet. No. Like every step of the evolution of internet advertising has been done in order to, yes, make more money, mm-hmm. but make more money so that we can have better services and make, you know, it's sure there is a capitalist side mm-hmm. and there are people out there just to make money. I'm not mm-hmm. going to deny that. Um, but A quick example is pop-up ads. Yeah. Probably universally, the first thing most people think of as like the most annoying thing on the internet. Yes. The guy who invented that, um, I think, let's see, five years ago, publicly apologized and said he had no idea what he was doing at the time because it came from a a place of pure intentions. Mm. So you have um, like a traditional ad format think about a newspaper yeah. or a magazine yeah. you're reading some content and then there's a little ad you skip over that and you keep reading your content the idea was well what if we took the ads out of the content mm. and so the page was just pure content and the ads popped up on the side it had a very pure that idea sounds good like right just there yeah but gone unchecked like suddenly yes. and like it's crazy yeah. and it becomes completely not um intendable all of yeah. a sudden yeah Um, it's the same thing with targeting. I think that the inception, the idea of targeting was, okay, well, we're asking people, what do you not like about advertising? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I look at this newspaper and like, I don't need women's underwear. I'm a man. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, okay, well, women also read this newspaper. So, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, but with digital technology, we have the ability to show specific ads to specific people at specific times. And so... That coupled with the fact that, oh, but we know, we know their gender, we know their age, we know what city they're in, we can do all these things. And so there was this pure intention of we're going to serve more personalized ads to make your ad experience better. And gone unchecked, the backside, the backlash of that is that now people feel creeped out. It's like, how does this website know that I was looking at those shoes last week? Because it sort of gets to how much can we know? Yeah. Like, we know you're a man, we know you live here, but how much more can we know? Or should you know? Yeah. It's about, it's about consent. Yeah. Um, I, I, I used to say, um, 
with advertising, the digital advertising, imagine you were standing on a sidewalk and you had a bowl of free samples yeah. and you had to hand them out to people walking down the street. Um, I used to think that's a good analogy because you only want to target based off of things that are you know, obvious without having to talk to someone oh, yeah. or dig deeper. Yeah. But now I don't like that anymore because... It, that in itself is including so much bias. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm giving out, I always use makeup, my example. If I'm giving out makeup samples, yeah. I'm probably going to choose like mostly women or like effeminate looking men. I'm not going to hand it to like some big, like burling Viking looking <laughs> guy, but who knows? Maybe he has an acne problem and he actually does use a lot of makeup and he's really good at it. And yeah. I just can't tell. Um, so I've started to like really backtrack and I'm like the less targeting, the better. Like if you just target based off of, I don't even know broad, terms. broad yeah. strokes. Like yeah. you're, you're in this city where the product is sold. For example, like yeah. if I saw an ad for a cafe in Honolulu <laughs> while in Stockholm, yeah. it's kind of stupid. Like I'm not going to go there anytime soon. You might be their target customer, but, you're but not. I'm not the right place, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how I got started on that. <laughs> <laughs> like we, we were talking before, we could talk about this yeah. forever. No, it's always, it was the downside. It's, yeah. how, it's how it can go really wrong. So I think like almost every single step, every stage, almost every stage of digital advertising evolution and internet advertising evolution has been in good intentions. My problem or my frustration that I see is that with technology, and this is not just digital technology, but it's all technology, um, Oftentimes, we come up with technology. Like, what is technology? It's it's a method or a tool to automate or mm -hmm. simplify something that's otherwise annoying. Yeah. We have hammers because if I want to put a nail in there without a hammer, that's really hard. It's mm -hmm. going to hurt or anything, the rock or something, you know, yeah. hammer, very convenient. Yeah. Um, so that's technology. And with digital technology, there is this whole removed layer where I don't have to produce anything mm -hmm. physical. I mm -hmm. don't have to ship anything. There's a lot less cost involved in yeah. it. Yeah. So there's an easier market to get into it. And you have people that are very smart and very well-intentioned, but they're not from that world. So you have these data scientists or analysts, and they come into the advertising world from the ad tech side but they don't understand the whole other side of like the emotional side of advertising. And so they get completely separated. Um, and that's been another big shift or divide between the advertising worlds is you have like broadcasts, so TV and cinema and stuff, and you have print like magazines and newspapers. Um, and then you have digital, yeah. which is, you know, social media and websites and creative quality on those two things, mm. two different worlds. Like I think about Max hamburgers a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love Max. <laughs> yeah. Like their in-store experience. Amazing. Yeah. Everything is so well designed. Yeah. Their TV ads are beautiful. Mm. It's like they have the branding is spot on and the timing. Everything is so nice. Their social media, like their Instagram account, yeah. beautiful. Everything they do is beautiful. And then their banner ads mm -hmm. is like a caveman with like a big sledgehammer where it's like, here is a Google map mm -hmm. that shows you all the nearest <laughs> Max. It's like, okay, this is assuming that I know what Max is. Mm -hmm. This is assuming that I know what the brand is. There's just so many assumptions that go along with it. And it's because like, that's how digital advertising has been transformed okay. to be focused on 
um, these metrics that have been imposed only on digital mm. and not being imposed on the traditional forms of advertising. And, and I'm also thinking about how uh, this, this digital age mm-hmm. makes words so much. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of, let's take, for example, Twitter and how politicians can use that mm-hmm. and how much these words can affect our discourse. Yeah. It can be very useful having someone who can objectively uh, analyze what words yeah. are being used and mm-hmm. what effect that might have. Definitely. So I see it being more important in this digital age as well. Absolutely. Like uh, on one like one part of the story is really that uh, we uh, we need to understand that, for example, politicians strive for popularity and gaining engagement, mm-hmm. and so that's the reality of the parties as well. So they are always looking at data in order to get more engagement Mm -hmm. and nothing creates more engagement like entertainment or fear or Mm -hmm. using our fear and trying to use that as driving engagement. Yeah. Uh, So that could actually uh, change the way you talk Mm -hmm. because you want to, you know, connect with your audience group. Yeah. So that's part one part of it. Like we have a recent example of a one Swedish party uh, with a spokesperson talking about a man begging on the um, on a bus, yeah, yeah. and they didn't let um, uh, let a woman into the bus based on a picture that he has seen in social media. But what happened was that. Mm-hmm. She wasn't refused on the bus. First of all, the guy was praying on his lunch break. Okay. Or a break, his yeah. break. Yeah. So she wasn't supposed to enter the bus. Oh, uh, the bus wasn't uh, in, in service. No, it wasn't in service. So she she wasn't supposed to enter mm. the bus. But what happened is that he took this picture yeah. out of context, put it on Twitter and said that this is disgraceful. I, I don't remember the actual quote. Yeah, I yeah. have to very say that. And that started to circulate as well. And it took that image from other, you know, social media accounts. Yeah. It and it's very, it's so very, very dangerous yeah. because obviously you see something that will generate attention and a lot of, um, you know, reach. Yeah. Uh, so that's one part of it. And could easily get away with it yeah. if no one's monitoring monitoring these types of behaviors. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it plays on fear and prejudice against people. So yeah. you, he is building on that. And sometimes you're not even aware that you're doing it. Mm. I mean, Trump is another uh, example of doing this yeah. too. Um, well, Muslim has been a target group for him for a long time yeah. since his presidential campaign. But I mean, in the recent you can connect, you could connect his Twitter uh, tweets. tweets. Oh my yeah. God, I'm yeah. all too old. <laughs> or I, I don't know, or I'm too young. <laughs> to don't understand <laughs> what Twitter. What's that? What's this? Yeah. Did you see him on Snapchat <laughs> <laughs> when his Twitter, yeah. Where in his tweets when he targeted Latinos. Mm. And you could co- perhaps connect it to the the uh, attack in El Paso, for oh, example. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Donald Trump must be a really easy case for your type of data. 
Yeah. Is it like he's very clear in his... He's uh, very clear and there's so many examples and there there's also previous studies that has been done on the topic. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it's a good way of sometimes compare the yeah. situation in the States versus Sweden mm-hmm. because they have more, um, you know... Um, uh, accessible numbers yeah. on how, for example, the campaign, the presidential campaign affected hate crimes oh, yeah. uh, uh, regarding like uh, towards certain groups that were mentioned mm. in Donald Trump's uh, speeches, for example, okay. or in his tweets, and you could connect them. Yeah. Um, so that's something we also would like to look at and to have closer partnership with the police to get records the, oh, yeah. and oh, compare. Uh, and to see if there is, if, if you can see um, an effect from the rhetorical framing of yeah. uh, politicians. Yeah. Sort of bringing the data into real life, what's really going on uh, in, in actuality. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. faster. That's yeah. why we, we can't do it manually. No, of course. <laughs> That's why we need a part machine, part human, yeah. in order to do this more uh, quicker. So, talking about diversity, diversity and inclusion in large, what does this do to the world? What what type of society are we hoping to see with a broader, more, uh, a, a bigger diversity? Well, we can see, I, I know a lot of um, reports say that uh, the bigger diversity, yeah, yeah. Um, the more perspectives, yeah. the higher innovation and yeah. so on. And we need innovation yeah. uh, in order to survive yes. as a species, basically. Uh, and we can't do that unless we work together, obviously. Yeah. So uh, globalization is uh, the key to yeah. survival. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what we can see is uh, the more perspectives that we involve uh, in all matters, the better we get off. So uh, what we can we've done a little bit of research is we've taken three groups of people where first one has high uh, perspective density the one is uh, mid perspective density and the last one is low perspective density and we've added inclusive leadership to all three uh, groups Mm -hmm. where you can see what the low um, and we asked them all the same question one question the first one we we saw that with the low uh, perspective density uh, group with not that many perspectives uh, we've got approximately 12 answers to the question the mid one, we got 70. The last one, we got 120. How big group groups was the it? The same size, 10. 10. Okay, wow. Which means that if you do have somebody that can, like a leadership that can harvest the difference, differences, the different perspectives yes. in teams, in people, that's where we have innovation. Wow. And that's why innovation is created. So what we make sure is that uh, we have as many perspectives as possible, yeah. but then include inclusive leadership uh, people that have the ability, that have the knowledge and competence to harvest uh, all the different, what different perspectives actually mean. So when they d- disagree, somebody comes in like, this is interesting. Mm. You disagree. Why? Give me more answers. Mm. Like, what is that? That's where you find solutions to pains. Yes. And that's how we survive as species. The, the mission is basically to make the future of the internet fair and beautiful for everybody. I want it to be, I see the internet as a human right. Um, As an American, when I moved to Sweden and I found out that in Sweden, you can't sell an apartment or a house or rent an apartment or a house without having high speed internet. 
which is like on the same level it has to have water electricity yes. and high speed internet yeah. like that's like what it's amazing because that's what the world needs yeah. like we need that yeah. we need that connections connectivity and yes yeah. we need that exposure um and i fear that the major players of the internet right now are still focused too much on the publisher pocket mm. and not on the user experience for the greater internet as a whole. And that's what I see technology as doing. How technology tends to automate one section mm -hmm. without looking how it affects the entire machine. So you get a data point that you're focused in on and just improving that data point without looking at the whole picture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you speed up this thing, yeah. it's going to speed up this cog, but then this one's going to slow down oh, over yeah. there as a result. Oh, yeah. um, and so my mission is to look at it from a whole perspective. Like it's not just that we need better privacy rights. It's not just that we need better UX. We don't want ads that move content around and cover content. Um, it's that we also need ads that remind us of like the golden age of advertising where things were emotional and mm -hmm. things were funny and like we appreciated seeing them. Um, and with all of those things combined, um, I believe <laughs> that this would ensure a future of people not hating internet advertising the way that they do. Because the same people who enjoy a digital out of home experience or a TV ad mm. are the same people who don't like internet ads. Oh, yeah. um, I was in a conference room one time with 400 people and I asked, all right, everybody, Stand up if you have an ad block plugin installed on your computer yeah. that blocks all ads. Yeah. And like maybe 24, 25% stood up or something. I'm just like, okay, you who are standing, stay standing if you voted in your last political election in your home country. Oh, yeah. And almost everyone stayed standing. And like they all kind of looked around and there was kind of like an awkward silence and then some laughter. And like everyone was like, what, what are you doing? Yeah. And I was like, don't you see? Like you on one hand, see that you do have power. When you vote, you just happened again. Mm -hmm. like my hair go straight up. When you vote, you understand. You <laughs> when you vote, you understand that you might be one person, but you one person, oh sorry, you one person collected with thousands other, that makes a big change. Um, when you use ad block, it's the opposite because you're blocking the ad, the publisher's not making the revenue. So then more aggressive ads come in. The, the ones that move the content down, the websites that no longer have ads because you ad blocked them. And now you have to pay for that content that you wanted otherwise. And maybe that article would have changed your life, but you and everyone else used ad block. This is a, probably a hard question, but if you were to guess, how far off are we in realizing and making these changes well, in a bright, broader perspective? That's a very hard question. <laughs> uh, it depends you. really what you want to do yeah. and which perspectives you want to include and when you, where you have your end game basically like what are you what are you in for yeah, yeah what, what yeah. are you in for and how do you want sweden or the, the nordics to be perceived mm. or develop in maybe 50s 100 years yeah. like, it's a very long perspective mm. uh, but 
on short base perspective, yeah. um, for example, a company comes to us and, 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 and they have a real challenge. They are pumping a lot of money into buying media. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do great content. Everything is working content wise, yeah. but it's not inclusive. It's not, um, it's not targeted right. It's not segmented right. Mm-hmm. So when they run their campaign, for example, in, in, in social media, mm-hmm. they, sh- they shoot the campaign to a very broad audience group. So they spend a lot of money not getting the effective uh, outcome. Oh, yeah. uh, so what we do instead, we we just, we based on data-driven insights and quant- quantitative surveys, because yeah. that's what we basically do. Yeah. We do large quantitative surveys among minority groups. Um, based on those insights, um, we create a campaign which is inclusive and we segmentate uh, the audiences towards just on based on language mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. based on cultural values, and um, and it's not homogenic in in that sense. No. Like they're in in like for Arabic speaking minority groups, there are lots of different kinds of people yeah. living lots of different kinds of lives. Mm being Christians and Muslims and atheists and non-believers and believers in Star Trek. Like it's so, people are so complex. You need to understand this complexity and then you need to talk um, and communicate in a way that they actually understand and build trust to your company or to your authority or or whatever you want to call it. But, but like, we need to get that act these people activated they want to get activated yes. they're not sitting on the couch lazy they want to do stuff they want to do great stuff like one of our co-workers been in sweden for five years before we met him he was unemployed mm. he has mba you know from london school of economics yeah. um he's worked at a bank but he's unemployed. Why? He's been going to trainee and to trainee and to trainee, uh, but they don't keep him. So that's a huge problem. At the same time, a lot of companies are screaming after yeah. diverse group or diverse co-workers, uh, but they haven't really solved that challenge yet. How do we know these people? Yeah. How do we get insights from these people? And how do we adjust our communication and marketing or our values or, um, or uh, as we call it, inclusive infrastructures mm. within the companies mm. to actually um, make them welcome and give them the space and freedom to actually develop and, um, and co-create. Mm-hmm. That's great. Did I forget something? No, I think it's just that, like... <laughs> yeah, it was a perfect answer. No, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that really lies here, mm. you know, because... Because we are the target group. Mm. I think that uh, with our perspectives, for us, this is not um, a job. No. So much more. What is your aim? What are you trying to achieve with this? Is it battling the polarization that we're seeing is that your main target with this well yeah i mean uh, it's just this week we released a debate article um regarding el paso and beirum that we saw in norway yeah uh used to prove a point that in sweden Mm. and el paso is not like so far away that we might think Mm. as far away as we might think uh and I think that 
the most important task that we have now is to really highlight the consequences of our politicians and our media's way of phrasing groups in society mm. and what the consequences might be. Oh, yeah. So that might be the most urgent task for Open Act. Yeah. Uh, but then we also want to have a role in try to decrease the usage mm. of rhetorical framing that is hurting uh society yeah. as well like creating gaps between groups or people creating and enhancing us versus them oh. and so on that will result in hate crimes that will result in exclusion mm. that will result in legislation perhaps they might you know hinder certain groups in society mm. to advance and take part of society uh, and that's on the long term uh, but we have a very urgent task to deal with now right is to now. <laughs> point towards our, you know, uh, uh, to Swedish people in power. Yeah. And it's not only politicians, it mm -hmm. might be opinion leaders and meet the media yeah. to think about how they phrase their words and groups today. Yeah, because it's the, uh, affecting our democracy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your great <laughs> insights really well. Uh, I've learned a lot. And one thing this got me thinking of is how probably you were talking about the future. Mm. Um, this digital um, life, our digital being, it's becoming more and more intrusive. Mm. So with that, it should be beautiful as well. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about that, but yeah. Absolutely. That's, a, that's, that's what I want. I, I don't want... Um, I don't want the internet to be a crutch, you know, like mm -hmm. a, it should be a tool yeah. to increase connectivity yeah. and, and happiness. Yeah. Well, the human will be. Yeah, yeah. It shouldn't be like a drug yeah. or something yeah. that we become dependent on yeah. or, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for having me. Learnability Podcast is produced by Levels, working in the fields of digital transformation, innovation, product development, and venture. If you want to know more about us, visit at wearelevels.com. And oh yeah, if you want to find additional material and contribute to the platform, you can do that at learnability.online. That's learnability.online. Looking forward to getting in touch with you. And oh yeah, stay curious.